0: chapter eleven part one of the bronze eagle by baroness orxy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by dion Salt Lake city utah the losing hands an hour later maurice de st genis was in brussels though his head still ached his mind was clear and thoughts of crystal of happiness with her now at last within sight had chased every other thought away his home had been with the Cambrays ever since those old sad days in england he had a home to go to now a home where the kindly friendship of the comte as well as the love of crystal was ready to welcome him the warmth of anticipated happiness and well-being warmed his heart and gave strength to his body the horrors of the past few hours seemed all to have melted away behind him on the brussels road as did the remembrance of a man wounded himself and spent risking his life for the sake of a friend not that st genis meant to be ungrateful nor did he forget that wounded man lying alone and sick on the fringe of the wood by the roadside as soon as he had taken his horse round to the barracks in the rue des and before even he had a wash or had his uniform cleaned of stains and mud he rushed to the headquarters of the army service to see how soon a conveyance could be sent out to his friend and when he was unable to obtain what he wanted there he rushed from hospital to hospital thence to two or three doctors whom he knew of to see what could be done but the hospitals were already over full and over busy their ambulances were all already on the way as for the doctors they were all from home all at work where their skill was most needed an army of doctors of ambulances and drivers would not suffice at this hour to bring all the wounded in from the spot where that awful battle was raging and maurice saw time slipping by he had already spent an hour in a fruitless quest he longed to see crystal and waxed impatient at the delay anon at the english hospital a kindly person who listened sympathetically to his tale promised him that the ambulance which was just setting out in the direction of mont st jean would be on the lookout for his wounded friend by the roadside and maurice with a sigh of relief felt that he had indeed done his duty and done his best at the english hospital Clifford would be splendidly looked after nowhere else could he find such sympathetic treatment and maurice with a light heart went back to the barracks in the rue des Comedians, where he had a wash and had his uniform cleaned somewhat refreshed though still very tired he hurried round to the rue du Marais, where the Comte de Cambrai had his lodgings. The first sight of Brussels had already told him—the whole pitiable tale of panic and of desolation which had filled the city in the wake of the fugitive troops. The streets were encumbered with vehicles of every kind—carts, Barrows with horses loosely tethered with the wounded who lay about on litters of straw along the edges of the pavement in doorways under archways in the centre of open places with crowds of weeping women and crying children wandering aimlessly from place to place trying to find the loved one who might be lying here hurt or mayhap dying and everywhere men in tattered uniforms with grimy hands and faces and boots knee-deep in stains of mud stood about or sat in the empty carts talking gesticulating giving sundry confused and contradictory accounts of the great battle describing napoleon's decisive victory wellington's rout the prolonged absence of blucher and the prussians cause of the terrible disaster m le comte d'artois had rushed precipitately from brussels up to ghent to warn his majesty the king of france that all hope of saving his throne was now at an end and that the wisest course to pursue was to return to england and resign himself once more to obscurity and exile Monsieur le prince de Condé too had gone off to antwerp in a huge barouche having under his care the treasure and jewels of the crown hastily collected three months ago at the tuileries in every open space a number of prisoners were being guarded by mixed patrols of dutch belgian or german soldiers and their cry of vive l'empereur which they reiterated with unshakable obstinacy roused the ire of their captors and provoked many a savage blow and many a broken head but st genis did not pause to look on these sights he had not the strength to stand up in the midst of these confused masses of terror-driven men and women and to shout to them that they were fools that all their panic must be turned to joy their lamentations to shouts of jubilation news of victory was bound to spread through the city within the next hour and he himself longed only to see crystal to reassure her as to his own safety to see the light of happiness kindled in her eyes by the news which he brought he had not the strength for more. It was old Jean who opened the door at the lodgings in the Rue du Marais, where Maurice finally rang the bell there. Monsieur le Marquis!' she exclaimed. "'Oh, but you are ill!' "'Only very tired and weak, Jean,' he said. "'It has been an awful day. "'Ah, but Monsieur Le Comte will be pleased. "'And Mademoiselle Crystal?' asked maurice with a smile which had in it all the self-confidence of the accepted lover mademoiselle crystal will be happy too said jeanne she has been so unhappy so desperately anxious all day can i see her mademoiselle is out for the moment m le marquis and m le comte has gone to the circle des Legitimistes in the rue des cendres perhaps m le marquis knows it is not far i would like to see Mademoiselle crystal first you understand don't you Jean? yes i do m le marquis sighed faithful jeanne who was always inclined to be sentimental how long will she be do you think oh another half-hour perhaps more mademoiselle has gone to the cathedral if m le marquis will give himself the trouble to walk so far he cannot fail to see mademoiselle when she comes out of church but already before jeanne had finished speaking maurice had turned on his heel and was speeding back down the narrow street tired and weak as he was his one idea was to see crystal to hear her voice to see the love-light in her eyes he felt that at sight of her all fatigue would be gone all recollections of the horrors of this day wiped out with the first look of joy and relief with which she would greet him the service was over and the congregation had filed out of the cathedral crystal was one of the last to go she stood for a long while in the porch looking down with unseeing eyes on the bustle and excitement which went on in the place down below her mind was not here it was far indeed from the crowd of terror-stricken or gossiping men and women of wounded soldiers terrified peasantry and anxious townsfolk that encumbered the precincts of the stately edifice from the remote distance out toward the south came the boom and roar of cannon and musket fire almost incessant still there was her heart there her thoughts with the brave men who were fighting for their national existence with the british troops and with their sufferings, and she stood here, staring straight out before her, dry-eyed and pale, and small white hands clasped tightly together. The greater part of to-day she had sat by the open window in the shabby drawing-room in the Rue du Marais, listening to that awful fusillade wondering with mind well-nigh bursting with horror and with misery which of those cruel shots which she heard in the dim distance would still for ever the brave and loyal heart that had made so many silent sacrifices for her and her father vaguely thinking that she was anxious about maurice vaguely wondering that she cared so much had done his best to try and comfort her she need not fear much for maurice he had told her as reassuringly as he could the brunswickers were not likely to suffer much the brunt of the conflict would fall upon the british ah but they would lose very heavily. Wellington had not more than 70,000 men to put up against the Corsican's troops, and only a hundred and fifty cannon against 280. Yes, the British would probably be annihilated by superior forces, but no doubt the other allies and the Brunswickers would come off a great deal better but madame la duchesse de d'Agen offered no such consolation she contented herself with saying that she was sure in her mind that maurice would come through quite safely and that she prayed to god with all her heart and soul that the gallant british troops would not suffer too heavily then with her fine gentle hand she patted crystal's fair curls which were clinging matted and damp against the young girl's burning forehead and she stooped and kissed those aching dry blue eyes and whispered quite under her breath so that crystal could not be sure if she heard correctly may god protect him too he is a brave and a good man and then crystal had gone out to seek peace and rest in beautiful old st gudule so full of memories of other conflicts other prayers other deeds of heroism of long ago here in the dim light and the silence and the peace her quivering nerves had become somewhat stilled and when she came out she was able just for the moment neither to see or hear the terror-mongers down below and only to think of the heroes out there on the field of battle for whom she had just prayed with such passionate earnestness suddenly in the crowd she recognised maurice he was coming up the cathedral steps looking for her no doubt jean must have directed him when he drew near to her he saw that a look of happy surprise and of true joy lit up the delicate pathos of her face he ran quickly to her now he would have taken her in his arms here in the face of the crowd But there was something in her manner which instinctively sobered him, and he had to be content with the little cold hands which she held out to him, and with imprinting a kiss upon her finger-tips. Already in his eyes she had read that the news which he brought was not so bad as rumor had foretold. Maurice, she cried excitedly, with a little catch in her throat, you are well and safe thank god and what news the news is good maurice replied victory is assured by now it has been a hard day but we have won she said nothing for a moment but the tears gathered in her eyes her lips quivered and maurice knew that she was thanking god then she turned back to him and he could see her face glowing with excitement and our allies she asked and now that little catch in her throat was more marked the british troops we heard that they behaved like heroes and bore the brunt of this awful battle i don't know much about the british troops my sweet he replied lightly but what news i have i will have to impart to your father as well as to you so it will have to keep until i see him but just now crystal while we are alone i have other things to say to you but it is doubtful that crystal heard more than just the first words which he had spoken for she broke in quite irrelevantly you don't know about the british troops Maurice, oh but you must know don't you know what british regiments were engaged i know that none of our own people were in british regiments crystal he retorted somewhat dryly whereas the brunswickers and nassauers were as much french as german they fought gallantly all day you do not ask so much about them but she stammered while a hot flush spread over her cheeks i thought you said are you not content for the moment crystal he called out with tender reproach to know that victory has crowned our king and his allies and that i have come back to you safely out of that raging hell at waterloo are you not glad that i am here he spoke more vehemently now for there was something in crystal's calm attitude which had begun to chill him had he not been in deadly danger all the day had she not heard that distant cannon's roar which had threatened his life throughout all these hours had he not come back out of the very jaws of death and yet here she stood white as a lily and as unruffled except for that one first exclamation of joy not a single cry from the heart had forced itself through her pale slightly trembling lips yet she was as sweet and girlish and tender as of old and even now at the implied reproach her eyes had quickly filled with tears how can you ask maurice she protested gently i have thought of you and prayed for you all day it was her quiet serenity that disconcerted him the kindly tone of her voice her calm unembarrassed manner checked his passionate impulse and caused him to bite his underlip with vexation until it bled the shadows of evening were closing in around them from the windows of the houses close by dim yellow lights began to blink like eyes overhead the exquisite towers of saint gudule stood out against the stormy sky like perfect delicate lacework turned to stone whilst the glass of the west window glittered like a sheet of sapphires and emeralds and rubies as it caught the last rays of the sinking sun crystal's graceful figure stood out in its white summer draperies clear and crystalline as herself against the sombre background of the cathedral porch and maurice watched her through the dim shadows of gathering twilight he watched her as a fowler watches the bird which he has captured and never wholly tamed somehow he felt that her love for him was not quite what it had been until now, that she was no longer the same girlish, submissive creature on whose soft cheeks a word or look from him had the power to raise a flush of joy. She was different now, in a curious, intangible way which he could not define, and jealousy reared up its threatening head more insistently. Bitter jealousy which embraced de Marmont, Clifford, fate, and circumstance, but Clifford above all, the stranger hitherto deemed of no account, but who now, wounded, abandoned, dying, perhaps, seemed a more formidable rival than Maurice a while ago had deemed possible. He cursed himself for that touch of sentiment. He called it cowardice, which the other night, after the ball had prompted him to write to crystal but for that voluntary confession he thought she could never have despised him and following up the train of his own thoughts and realizing that these had not been spoken aloud he suddenly called out abruptly is it because of my letter crystal She gave a start, and turned even paler than she had been before. Obviously she had been brought roughly back from the land of dreams. "'Your letter, Maurice?' she asked vaguely. "'What do you mean?' "'I wrote you a letter the other night,' he continued, speaking quickly and harshly after the ball. "'Did you receive it?' "'Yes. And read it?' "'Of course. And is it because of it?' that your love for me has gone he had not meant to put his horrible suspicions into words the very fact now that he had spoken appeared more tangible even irremediable she did not reply to his taunt and he came a little closer to her and took her hand and when she tried to withdraw it from his grasp he held it tightly and bent down his head so that in the gathering gloom he could read every line of her face because of what i told you in my letter you despised me did you not he asked again she made no reply what could she say that would not hurt him far more than did her silence the next moment he had drawn her back right into the shadow of the cathedral walls, into a dark angle, where no one could see either her or him. He placed his hands upon her shoulders and compelled her to look him straight in the face. Listen, Crystal, he said slowly and with desperate earnestness, once long ago I gave you up to de Marmont." to affluence and to considerations of your name and of our caste it all but broke my heart but i did it because your father demanded that sacrifice from you and from me i was ready then to stand aside and to give up all the dreams of my youth but now everything is different for one thing the events of the past hundred days have made every man many years older the hell i went through to-day has helped to make a more sober more determined man of me now i will not give you up i will not my way is clear i can win you with your father's consent and give him and you all that de marmont had promised the king trusts me and will give me what i ask i am no longer a wastrel no longer poor and obscure and i will not give you up i swear it by all that i have gone through to-day i will not if i have to kill with my own hand everyone who stands in my way.' And Crystal, smiling, quite kindly and a little abstractedly, at his impulsive earnestness, gently removed his hands from her shoulders and said calmly, "'You are tired, Maurice, and overwrought. Shall we go in and wait for father? He will be getting anxious about me.' and without waiting to see if he followed her she turned to walk toward the steps st genis smothered a violent oath but he said nothing more he was satisfied with what he had done he knew that women liked a masterful man and he meant every word which he said he would not give her up not now and not to ye gods he would not think of that he would not think of the lonely roadside nor of the wounded man who had robbed him of crystal's love he had done his duty by clifford what more could he have done at this hour and he meant to do more than that he meant to go back to the english hospital as soon as possible to see that clifford had every attention every care every comfort that human sympathy can bestow What more could he do? He would have done no good by going out with the ambulance himself, surely not. He would have missed seeing Crystal, and she would have fretted, and been still more anxious. His first duty was to Crystal, and—and St. Genis only thought of Crystal and of himself, and the voice of conscience was compulsorily stilled having lulled his conscience to sleep and satisfied his self-love by a passionate tirade maurice followed crystal down the steps at the west front of st immediately opposite them at the corner of the narrow rue de Ligne was the old auberge de Troye-roy, from whence the diligence started twice a day in time to catch the tide and the english packet at ostend maurice and crystal stood for a moment together on the steps watching the bustle and excitement the comings and goings of the crowd which always attend such departures all day there had been a steady stream of fugitives out of the town taking their belongings with them the diligence was for the well-to-do and the indifferent who hurried away to england to await the advent of more settled times victor de marmont had secured his place inside the coach he had exchanged his borrowed uniform for civilian clothes he had bestowed his belongings in the vehicle and was standing about desultorily waiting for the hour of departure the diligence would not arrive at ostend until five o'clock in the morning then with the tide the packet would go out getting into london well after midday chance as represented by the tide had seriously handicapped de marmont's plans but enthusiasm and doggedness of purpose whispered to him that he still held the winning card the english packet was timed to arrive in london by two o'clock in the afternoon he would still have two hours to his credit before closing time on change and another hour in the street time to find his broker and half an hour to spare that would still leave him an hour wherein to make a fortune for his emperor at one time He was afraid that he would not be able to secure a seat in the diligence, so numerous were the travellers who wished to leave Brussels behind them. But in this, chance and the length of his purse favoured him. He bought his seat for an exorbitant price, but he bought it, and at nine o'clock the diligence was timed to start it was now half-past eight and just then de marmont caught sight of crystal and st genis coming down the cathedral steps he had half an hour to spare and he followed them he wanted to speak to crystal he had wanted it all day but the difficulty of getting what clothes he required and the trouble and time spent in bargaining for a seat in the diligence had stood in his way Monsieur le comte de cambray would never of course admit him inside his doors and it would have meant hanging about in the rue du Marais and trusting to a chance meeting with crystal when she went out and for this he had not the time and the chance meeting had come about in spite of all adverse circumstances and de marmont followed crystal through the crowded streets hoping that st genis would take leave of her before she went indoors but even if he did not de marmont meant to have a few words with crystal he was going to win a gigantic fortune for the emperor one wherewith that greatest of all adventurers could once again recreate the empire of france he himself rich already would become richer still and also if his coup succeeded one of the most trusted most influential men in the recreated empire he felt that with the offer of his name he could pour out a veritable cornucopia of abundant glory honors wealth at a woman's feet and his ambition had always been bound up in a great measure with crystal de cambray he certainly loved her in his way for her beauty and her charm but above all he looked on her as the very personification of the old and proud regime which had thought fit to scorn the parvenu noblesse of the empire and for a powerful adherent of napoleon to be possessed of a wife out of that exclusive was like a fresh and glorious trophy of war on a conqueror's chariot-wheel de marmont had the supreme faith of an ambitious man in the power of wealth and of court favour he knew that napoleon was not a man who ever forgot a service efficiently rendered and would repay this one rendered at the supreme hour of disaster with a surfeit of gratitude and of gifts which must perforce dazzle any woman's eyes and conquer her imagination besides his schemes his ambitions the future which awaited him what had an impecunious wastrel like st genis to offer to a woman like crystal de cambray outside the house in the rue du where the comte de cambray lodged st genis and crystal paused and de marmont who still kept within the shadows waited for a favourable opportunity to make his presence known i'll find m le comte and bring him back with me he heard st genis saying you are sure i shall find him at the legitimiste quite sure crystal replied he did not mean to leave the f- circle till about nine he is sure to wait for every bit of news that comes in it will be a great moment for me if i am the first to bring in authentic good news you will be quite the first i should say she assented but don't let father stay too long talking bring him back quickly remember i haven't heard all the news yet myself st genis went up to the front door and rang the bell then he took leave of crystal de marmont waited his opportunity anon jean opened the door and st genis walked quickly back down the street crystal paused a moment by the open door in order to talk to jean and while she did so de marmont slipped quickly past her into the house and was some way down the corridor before the two women had recovered from their surprise jeanne as was her wont was ready to scream but despite the fast-gathering gloom crystal had at once recognized de marmont she turned a cold look upon him an intrusion monsieur she asked quietly "'We'll call it that, mademoiselle, and you will,' he replied imperturbably, "'and if you will kindly order your servant to go, it shall be a very brief one.' "'My father is from home,' she said. De Marmont smiled and shrugged his shoulders. "'I know that,' he said, or I would not be here. "'Then your intrusion is that of a coward, if you knew that I was unprotected.' "'Are you afraid of me, Crystal? he asked with a sneer i am afraid of no one she replied but since you and i have nothing to say to one another i beg that you will no longer force your company upon me your pardon but there is something very important which i must say to you i have news of to-day's doings out there at waterloo which bear upon the whole of your future and upon your happiness i myself leave for england in less than half an hour i was taking my place in the diligence outside the troy roy when i saw you coming down the cathedral steps fate has given me an opportunity for which i sought vainly all day you will never regret it crystal if you listen to me now i listen she broke in coolly i pray you be as brief as you can will you order the servant to go for a moment longer she hesitated common sense told her that it was neither prudent nor expedient to hold converse with this man who was an avowed and bitter enemy of her cause but he had spoken of the doings at waterloo and spoken of them in connection with her own future and her happiness and prudent or not she wanted to hear what he had to say in the vague hope that from a chance word carelessly dropped by victor de marmont she would glean if only a scrap some news of that on which st genis would not dwell but on which hung her heart and her very life the fate of the british troops after all he might know something he might say something which would help her to bear this intolerable misery of uncertainty and on the merest chance of that she threw prudence to the winds you may go jean she said but remain within call leave the front door open she added "Monsieur le comte and Monsieur le marquis will be here directly oh you are well protected said victor de marmont with a careless shrug of the shoulders as jeanne's heavy shuffling footsteps died away down the corridor now Monsieur de marmont said crystal coolly i listen she was leaning back against the wall her hands behind her her pale face and large blue eyes with their black dilated pupils turned questioningly upon him the walls of the corridor were painted white after the manner of flemish houses the tiled floor was white too and crystal herself was dressed all in white so that the whole scene made up of pale soft tints looked weird and ghostly in the twilight and crystal like an ethereal creature come down from the land of nymphs and of elves and de marmont too like st genis a while ago felt that never had this beautiful woman she was no longer a girl now looked more exquisite and more desirable and he conscious of the power which fortune and success can give thought that he could woo and win her once again in spite of caste prejudice and of political hatred st genis had felt his position unassailable by virtue of old associations common sympathies and youthful vows de marmont relied on feminine ambition love of power, of wealth, and of station, and at this moment, in Crystal's shining eyes, he only read excitement and the unspoken desire for all that he was prepared to offer. I have only a few moments to spare, Crystal, he said slowly and with earnest emphasis, so I will be very brief. For the moment the Emperor has suffered a defeat, as he did at Ilo or at Leipzig his defeats are always momentary his victories alone are decisive and abiding the whole world knows that it needs no proclaiming from me but in order to retrieve that momentary defeat of to-day he has deigned to ask my help the gods are good to me they have put it within my power to help my emperor in his need i am going to england to-night in order to carry out his instructions by to-morrow afternoon i shall have finished my work the empire of france will once more rise triumphant and glorious out of the ashes of a brief defeat the emperor once more phoebus like will drive the chariot of the sun lord and master of europe greater since his downfall, more powerful, more majestic than ever before—and I, who will have been the humble instrument of his reconquered glory, will deserve to the full his bounty and his gratitude. He paused for lack of breath, for, indeed, he had talked fast and volubly. Crystal's voice, cold and measured, broke in on the silence that ensued and in what way does all this concern me m de marmont she asked it concerns your whole future crystal he replied with ever-growing solemnity and conviction you must have known all along that i have never ceased to love you you have always been the only possible woman for me my ideal in fact your father's injustice i am willing to forget your troth was plighted to me and i have done nothing to deserve all the insults which he thought fit to heap upon me i wanted you to know crystal that my love is still yours and that the fortune and glory which i now go forth to win i will place with inexpressible joy at your feet she shrugged her shoulders and an air of supreme indifference spread over her face is that all she asked coldly all what do you mean i don't understand i mean that you persuaded me to listen to you on the pretence that you had news to tell me of the doings at waterloo news on which my happiness depended you have not told me a single fact that concerns me in the least it concerns you as it concerns me crystal your happiness is bound up with mine you are still my promised wife i go to win glory for my name which will soon be yours you and i crystal hand in hand think of it our love has survived the political turmoils united in love united in glory you and i will be the most brilliant stars that will shine at the imperial court of france she did not try to interrupt his tirade but looked on him with cool wonderment as one gazes on some curious animal that is raving and raging behind iron bars when he had finished she said quietly you are mad i think m de marmont at any rate you had better go now time is getting on and you will lose your place in the diligence he was less to her than the dust under her feet and his protestations had not even the power to rouse her wrath indeed all that worried her at the moment was vexation with herself for having troubled to listen to him at all it had been worse than foolish to suppose that he had any news to impart which did not directly concern himself so now while he utterly taken aback was staring at her open-mouthed and bewildered she turned away cold and full of disdain gathering her draperies round her and started to walk slowly toward the stairs her clinging white skirt made a soft swishing sound as it brushed the tiled floor and she herself with her slender figure graceful neck and crown of golden curls looked as the gloom of evening wrapped her in more like an intangible elf an apparition gliding through space than just a scornful woman who had thought fit to reject the importunate addresses of an unwelcome suitor she left de marmont standing there in the corridor like some presumptuous beggar burning with rage and humiliation too insignificant even to be feared but he was not the man to accept such a situation calmly his love for crystal had never been anything but a selfish one born of the desire to possess a high-born elegant wife taken out of the very caste which had scorned him and his kind her acquiescence he had always taken for granted her love he meant to win after his wooing of her hand had been successful, until then he could wait. So certain, too, was he, of his own power to win her, in virtue of all that he had to offer, that he would not take her scorn for real, or her refusal to listen to him as final. End of chapter 11, part 1